Today we begin a new series, a new series um, that in one way or another will run us through to July. Uh, there's nothing that uh, makes you feel like your life is flashing before your eyes as preparing a sermon series over a number of weeks. And uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Micah. Micah is in the Old Testament, if uh, you want to find it with me. And if you're not sure where it is, if you kind of open your Bible pretty much at a third, you get to the Psalms pretty much randomly. Then you get the big prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. They're the big boys. And then uh, you have Daniel. And then you have a, a, a collection of 12 minor prophets. And they're simply minor prophets because they didn't write as much as the major prophets. It's that reason. And Micah fits into that little group. Just after Jonah, Obadiah, and so on. And uh, if you go as far as Malachi, you've gone too far. And one of the things that uh, Phil once has made possible is, one of the interesting things is that uh, people listen to our church events and, and sermons and other things that we do and read about us um, much more widely than you might imagine. So a lot more people engage with what we're doing internally than would belong to our church community. And uh, one of the things that Phil wants to encourage is for you as listeners, as participants, to actually be, join a conversation about some of the things that you're listening to. And uh, if you go to the website, then you'll see a, an easy place to have that conversation. And um, for those of you that can, <laughs> you might want to do it during the sermon, that goes, yeah, I wish you'd just stop. Um, but uh, we would really value, actually, uh, this sort of another way of having a dialogue about some of the things that we talk about. So if you're interested and if you can... Let's read together from Micah. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, listen earth and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may witness against you the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and he treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the house of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's High place, isn't it, Jerusalem? Therefore, I'll make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I'll pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I'll destroy all her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they'll be used again. Because of this, Micah says, I will weep and wail. I'll go about barefoot and naked. I'll howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For Samaria's wound is incurable. It's come to Judah. It's reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. 
Pause there. Someone said, and uh, it's true, that if this document or documents like this in the Old Testament were supposing that they'd been lost for hundreds of years and they were dug up and found today, they would be put on front page of all the papers. Not because it's an interesting archaeological discovery simply, but because actually the way this is expressed is so rich and so poetic and so moving that people would engage with it in a new way. (coughs) 700 years ago, before, not 700 years ago, 700 years before Jesus, Micah was on the scene. And he was a prophet who came and he wanted to remind his people of God's heartbeat for them. And that's going to be the sort of the, the, met, the, the, sort of the, the metaphor or the motif that we use for this series. The idea of hearing God's heartbeat. What Micah knew, and what we kind of know, is that God has a real heart for the whole world. We often can slide into cliche when we end up saying, well, God loves the world. And it can sound so well-worn that we, we lose track of what that actually looks like. But what Micah was doing was coming and going, God's heartbeat for this world is so strong that he just won't give up on it because this is his creation. Because God longs for his creation to work right because his heart breaks at the things that clearly reflect a world gone wrong. And Micah, in the middle of this world that was drifting away from God bit by bit, wanted to come and say to the people of God, listen folks, I've got some bad news for you. And and putting it really bluntly, 700 years before Jesus was around, he was saying, God's going to judge the the earth because the world's going bad and it's your fault. (laughs) That's really harsh. That's really harsh. Just look with me though. If you've got that Bible open in front of you, look at verse 3 and look at verse 4. Look, he says. Well, verse 2, he says, listen, peoples, all of you, listen, the whole earth. And verse 3 and verse 4, look, the Lord's coming from his dwelling place. He comes down, he treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt before, beneath him. The valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. This is the idea of God's coming. And it's not, it's not, oh, great. It's actually God's coming for her world and he'll judge it because this world is just drifting so far away from his desire and his purpose. But listen to the next verse. All this is because of Jacob's transgression. God always has wanted to demonstrate to a world what life with him looks like. When God created the world, he created it perfect and you know that... uh, The fracture came because people, essentially, the the story of Adam and Eve is they wanted independence from God. They didn't want to do it God's way. 
And so once you sort of disconnect yourself from the creator, you're left trying to make it up as you go along. And so what does God do? Well, God sends a people. He gets Abraham. And he says, I'm going to make you into a nation because through you I want to show a world what a blessing can look like. God has always been in the business of showing the world, not just telling them. God didn't just send a Bible and say, that's the message, read that. He actually sends people, sends Abraham, who creates a nation. He creates, he sends Jesus, ultimately, brilliantly, magnificently, and says, if you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. And then he says, I'll send Jesus' people. I'll send the followers of Jesus. And I'll fill them with my spirit. And they'll show, they won't tell, they'll show what life with God looks like. If God was just in heaven going, the world's going, paraphrase, I don't think God would say this. If, if God was in heaven just going, the world's going to hell in a handcart, I don't think God would say that. He wouldn't just say, here, read this book and you'll get the instructions. He says, no, look at how people live when they're reconnected to God. Look at the good life. Last weekend, we were on the weekend away, and um, uh, we had a great time. It was good. And uh, the kids, it's really interesting to listen to the kids, the little children. And Adam, uh, one of our children, didn't want to go home. He said, no, let's stay in Wales in the rain. It's brilliant. <laughs> and uh, his mum and dad... Moragani and we're talking to Adam and saying, well, no, you've got to go. We've got to go back. We've got to go to our home. And Adam said, why can't we all just live here together? Now, what's Adam expressing at the age of, how old's Adam? Six, seven? Eight? Eight. Just a test for grandparents. Um, what's Adam expressing at the age of eight? He's expressing this thing of, actually, this weekend, when I'm together with these people, when I'm together with my mates here and finding friends that perhaps I didn't realize I had, it's a good place to be. I don't want to go back when we're separated. I want to be here. Now, there's a rich history of people saying that, and not just children, but adults, when they say, well, actually, let's... Uh, Let's go on our own. Let's get into the desert. Let's create our own little community. And that, that's never what God intends. But what God intends is what Adam was expressing. That there's something about our life together that can be qualitatively different. Some of us needed to go home last weekend just to get some sleep. It's tired being nice, isn't it? As I said, <laughs> God invites the world to see what life can be like when he's king by creating a people who live this life out so that others can see just how good this life can be. God invites the world to see what life can be like when he's king by creating a people who live this life out so that others can see how good this life can be. 
That's what God is still in the business of, show and tell. Let me show you what life looks like. Because in our world, in our wider world, we're still living in a context where people have disconnected themselves from their creator. And yet in that wider world, there are groups of people, people like ourselves, little groups who go, actually we've reconnected, we're not perfect, we're never claiming that, but we've reconnected with this creator God through Jesus. He made it possible that we could reconnect. And we're discovering that when we rely on him, and when we accept his spirit, his life in us, that actually we can act differently. We're not perfect. People upset each other. But we found that rather than just saying, I'm never going to speak to them again, or I'm going to get my own back, we can forgive. And that actually is remarkably different. And the idea always has been that God's people would be, and this is a a metaphor you'll know much better, salt and light. That actually we're people who can make a difference, but also demonstrate something. The salt that seasons, the salt that preserves, the salt that brings a difference. And the light that demonstrates something else. John Stark, he uh, was the minister of uh, the organization I work for. And uh, 35, 40 years ago, he said this. He said, there's no point. It's absolutely fruitless to blame the meat for going off. That's what meat does. It's where's the salt that enables the meat to be preserved. And there's some sense in which, for some Christians and some Christian groups, it's really easy for us to sort of fold our arms and tut-tut at the world and going, oh, isn't it a dreadful place? When actually, Jesus says, well, yeah, of course it is. (laughs) Like, that's news. Because they're disconnected from me. But my answer to the disconnection is you. And for some of us, it's like, when, we, when you're looking around going, well, why is there so much badness in the world? Why is there so much goes wrong? Well, God says, well, because it's disconnected. But I've actually dealt with this because I've got you. And then we go, you got any other ideas? Because it's you. And that's what Micah was wanting to say to Israel 700 years before Jesus came. So, what happens in the book of Micah? Well, when his people fail, when we stop being salt and light, when the people of God in the Old Testament stop being what they ought to have been, God does at least four things. Firstly, he sends prophets. A very quick overview and a reminder of what you know really well. If you think about the Bible, you've got um, very roughly in the Old Testament, very roughly for the sake of today, you've got history, you've got poetry and psalms and prayers and that sort of thing. You've got wisdom, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then you've got prophets. And actually, if you just were to split up the Bible into two bits, you've got history and prophets. Those are the big bits of the Old Testament. 
Why does God send prophets? Because people need to be reminded who they're supposed to be. And the history of the Old Testament, all the way through, is that it's remarkably easy for the people of God to forget who you're supposed to be. And so when God sees that, what he does, because he loves his world, he says, I'll send a prophet. Now what a prophet is, is someone who was so rooted in God's heartbeat, and so able to see what's going on in front of them, that they can see beyond what's actually happening. That's what a prophet is. Someone who can take... In the Old Testament, they took the Old Testament law. They're so rooted in that idea of the Old Testament law. And they go, I can see exactly what's happening now, and I can speak into that. I'll remind you who you are. There's a technical phrase for them. It's a, you don't need to know. It's just, it just amuses me. People talk about them being as covenant reinforcement people. And I kind of like that idea because it gives me a sense of... <laughs> They're like people because they remember the covenant that God made with his people. And they go, I'm here to reinforce the covenant. I'm here to call you back to who you should be. God loves his world so much that he sent his people. And when his people stop being what the people of God should be, he sends his prophets to say, Oi, you're missing it. So here's the test. You will know when we have failed to be the people he wants to be when you start thinking and I start thinking that this is a club for people like us. I haven't really got time to do this in the, in the sense I'd like to do it. But here's the, here's, I, I, I think I've just got a time just to drop it in and leave it, really. What do you complain most about in this church? I don't need answers right now because we, <laughs> we could be here all day. But here's the question. What do you complain about most? What is your major complaint about this place? Other than Mary, obviously. But what is... <laughs> on a birthday as well. What is your major complaint? Because I tell you what. When we start to identify what do we really complain about, that identifies, that, that's a marker of what you think we're about. So, the music's too loud, the chairs are not soft enough, we don't start at the right time, we go on too long, it's too hot, it's too cold. Actually, it's a marker. It's not that those things are not appropriate, but if those are your major complaints, that's what you think we're about. Let me put it like this. When you go to McDonald's, um, you know how it works. You go to the, f the, the, serve, uh, the serve, the hatch, the servery, the desk, the place. What do you call it? <laughs> Counter. I've <laughs> <laughs> not been to McDonald's for a while. <laughs> you go to the counter, you get people with a little few stars on the, badge, on the chest to say, I've been here one day, two days, three days, four days. <laughs> And, um, and I don't want to be here at all. And uh, you, you give your order quickly. You're scanning it really quickly. And you ask for whatever you ask for. They give it you. You go back and you sit at your desk. Desk. <laughs> table. <laughs> your table. You take your tray. After you've eaten, you take your tray. You bung it in the rubbish and you're out of there. And if you're in more than 30 minutes, you probably get fined. You go to a restaurant. And if you go in the door and they say, could you go to the counter over there and pick your food up? There's no menus, it's just on the board. Just go and get your own food. And, uh, and then you get back to your table and you realise the music's really quite loud. They don't want you to stay. There's no candles. There's nothing to make you uh, sort of slow down. There's not even much in the way of cutlery. And then when you finish, they say, can you clear up? 
You don't need to wash up because we're not giving you any flares. You would complain because actually you know the deal. You know when you go to McDonald's, the deal is they're gonna get, you're going to get in. It's called fast food for a reason. You don't linger. You go to a restaurant and there you know what the contract is. And I just want to say that actually every now and again we need to ask ourselves as individuals, what are my major complaints? Because if your major complaints are, it's not suiting me, I want to say with a lot of love, we've missed it. We've missed it. You can talk about that over coffee afterwards. <laughs> Which won't be right, it won't be. <laughs> You're on. <laughs> he sends prophets. He warns. God warns. When his people fail, God warns. Because actually, he warns his people because any other way than God's way leads to death. It leads to death. He acts and then he recreates hope. And that's the story of all of the prophets. And that's how you'll see this working out. So, how are we doing? Just a few minutes. The problem for the people were, they were telling one another that good times were lying ahead. When Micah comes, Micah goes, you are right. When Micah is speaking, the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah, Israel known as Samaria, and Judah uh, with Jerusalem as its uh, capital, they were in good times, prosperous, they were doing all right. And Micah goes, yes, but there's the problem. And he wants to identify the exact problem. And he, said he identifies two problems. And the first is this. In verse 5, and I've read it already, but he said, what is Jacob's transgression? Where has Israel gone wrong? And he says, isn't it Samaria? And then he says, what's Judah's high place? Isn't it Jerusalem? Now, what he's doing is using language that they understood really well. And we just need quickly to understand what he's saying. He's saying this. That your place of worship, your central place of worship in Samaria and in Jerusalem have become idolatrous. You've gone to worship, but you're no longer worshipping Jehovah. You're worshipping a God of your own making. They were prosperous, and the question they kept asking was, how do we stay prosperous and they looked at the nations around them and went, well, they're all worshipping this God and they're worshipping and they seem to be doing all right. Well, I think we could do that too. Maybe we ought to worship Baal. Maybe we should keep our fertility in terms of our land, our crops growing. Maybe the other nations are right, they said. Maybe the way you keep your, your, your fields producing is that you sleep with prostitutes at the temple who are there simply... To say, well, actually, if you want your fields to grow more crops, then I'm an agent of the gods. Come and sleep with me. Now, some of you are going, mm. <laughs> come and sleep with me, and you'll get, you'll, your crops will be fine. Now you're going, how did you get there? When at the beginning of your Bible it says, God created man and woman, and he created them different, but he created them to be connected and he created them with sex in mind but sex that were beautiful how can you end up trading sex as though God's going to be more impressed with you through that how can you work that one out they worked it out because other nations were doing it and they're going well they seem to be succeeding 
Now, that's not our particular problem, thankfully. Our particular problem is much more difficult to diagnose because we're in it. It's much easier to see the failure of other cultures than your own. So how do other people around you, how do the rest of your family, what makes life work for them? What makes life work for your friends or your peers at work? What do they rely on? Because the temptation is there that we'll do that too. The irony was they went to other gods and then in verse 13, which we didn't read, and by the way, what's going on in verse 10 through to verse 16? I didn't have time to go through it, but what he's doing, he's doing a real pun on place names and what's going wrong. You can read that. If you read the footnotes, you'll ex- it'll explain what's going on. But in verse um, 13, he says, You who live in Lachish, harness the team to the chariot. You were the beginning of sin t- to daughter Zion, for the transgressions of Israel were found in you. In other words, he uses a pun on the word Lachish, um, which uh, in the footnote says, uh, it sounds like the Hebrew word for team, And he says, what you've done is you've relied on chariots. You've relied on technology. You've relied on that to defend you. The irony of all is this. You thought other gods other than the way of Yahweh would save you. But at the same time, you said we have to rely on ourselves. You can't trust God. And ultimately, that's what idolatry is about. You simply can't trust God alone it's God plus something else God plus technique God plus the bit we can do God plus and it comes out in little phrases like God helps those who help themselves stuff that sounds like it should come from the Bible but it doesn't let me tell you it doesn't it's even possible in the Christian circles that you buy books like this or you read stuff like this prosperity teachings of the Bible And the cover is brilliant, isn't it? This is a book I haven't read, and it's not in our book group to be read, interestingly. So I don't know what it says, the rest of it, but I was just intrigued by the cover. Look at it. It's like the Bible is this magic book that makes it all about you. The real temptation for most of us is that when we became Christians, we thought we were enlisting God on our side. And the truth is, he enrolled us on his. That's the big deal. You became a Christian, you surrendered to Jesus, and you thought, well, he's dealt with my past, he's going to deal with my future, and he's there to help me now. God's for me, he's going to help me. And then when God seems to do stuff, and your marriage gets through difficulties, or your job crashes, or your kids go off the rail, you go, God, where have you gone? I'm going to give up on you. Because you're not kept your side of the bargain. And the truth was, the moment you surrendered to Jesus was the moment he said, I'm going to enroll you on mine. And as difficult as it may seem, and as counterculturally as it may sound, it's not all about you. It's about you being used for the kingdom of God. Micah speaks to a people because he recognizes that God loves a world that's going off the rails. And he says, God deals with show and tell. He doesn't just tell, he shows through you. So for us, this morning. Here's where I want to land it in two things. Firstly, it's about us being salt and light. If the salt loses its saltiness, we have nothing to offer. If the light is hidden, 
How will people see? And I think there's two things. Firstly, today, it's a recommitment from us to say we're going to walk the way of Jesus. We're going to live for the sake of others. We're going to live for the sake of a world that has disconnected itself from God. We will be part of God's answer to the problem that we have around us. And that starts with us, to say, Lord, we recommit ourselves to follow you. But the second thing is that tomorrow we need to demonstrate this way of life that bears witness to the way of Jesus. There needs to be something about the way we react tomorrow to people. There's something about the way we act proactively. There's something about the way we decide on how we're going to be with the people around us tomorrow, which will bear witness to the fact that we're following a different way here. There's something about grace and generosity and love. Because we want to give a reason for the hope we have. Because if we're right, we've seen the only way out of the situation we find ourselves in as a country is by getting reconnected to God. Now that needs to have the integrity in our own lives first. You can't tell other people if we're not actually experiencing it ourselves. But if we are, then actually the prayer tomorrow morning before you get up and you go to work is, or you go to around your businesses, okay God, how do I do that creatively here? How do I demonstrate something of the kingdom of God? 